Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is yet another episode in my Summer of True Crime series. Today's video is actually made in collaboration with Rachel Shannon, who is an amazing YouTuber, amazing true crime YouTuber. I'm pretty sure I say that about all of these people that I'm having on this series, but it is true. Everyone in this series is absolutely amazing and I strongly urge you to check them all out. I'd just like to point out this video has not been made because of disrespect or anything like that. It's just been made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. Now with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. On Thursday the 25th of April 1935, scores of family from Sydney, New South Wales, Australia flocked to the beaches of Corky and this was to celebrate Anzac Day. For those of you who don't know, Anzac Day is actually a day of remembrance for Australia and New Zealand and it is a day to commemorate and remember all Australians and New Zealanders who have served and perished in any of the wars and in any conflicts and peacekeeping operations. Now as you can imagine, there were loads of tourist attractions that lines the beaches of Coogee and one of these tourist attractions was called Sydney's Coogee Aquarium and Swimming Baths. And this aquarium on the 25th of April 1935 was absolutely jam-packed. People had flocked to the swimming baths when they had heard that there was a large tiger shark in one of the swimming pools. The owner of the aquarium and swimming baths had actually caught the 14 foot long tiger shark the week before and unfortunately the numbers of attendees at his aquarium were dwindling so he thought it'd be a really good idea to put what, this tiger shark that he had captured in one of his baths so that people would be more drawn to it and would come into the aquarium. And like I said earlier, this worked wonders for the aquarium and swimming baths. People would travel from all over Sydney just to come and have a look at this massive tiger shark that they had caught. Business for the aquarium was booming and everything was seemingly going really, really well. That particular Thursday was very busy with crowds flooding through the aquarium just to look at this tiger shark. That was until about 4.30 p.m. in the late afternoon on the Thursday and that was when things started taking a massive turn for the worst. The shark began convulsing in the water, shocking the onlookers before throwing up a rat, followed by a bird, followed by a human, Arm. This is the curious case of the surprise shark arm. Now, the members of the public who had witnessed this human arm being thrown up by the shark immediately contacted police, but police did not believe the reports that were coming into them, and they just thought that it was a practical joke. But when police arrived to the pool, they were shocked at what they saw. Now, we're going to put a picture of the arm up on the screen just as a forewarning. The image isn't graphic, but it focuses on a particular tattoo. The severed arm had a boxer tattoo with a piece of rope wrapped around the wrist. The police recovered it from the water and took it over to the medical examiner. And this is where things got a bit stranger. In the bizarre twist, it turns out that the arm hadn't been bitten off of a person like you would expect in a shark attack, but rather it had been severed off through the use of a blunt knife. The police immediately suspected foul play and investigators had a lot of questions to answer. 
Whose arm was this? How did it end up in the tiger shark's stomach? And is the person who this arm belongs to still alive? Now, it was the 1930s, so forensic technology was very primitive and not advanced in the slightest. However, after a lot of painstaking forensic work, investigators were able to actually lift several fingerprints off of this severed arm. And when they compared it with the fingerprint records that they had in Sydney, they found that it matched the records of a known criminal and a police informant. This known criminal was 40-year-old Englishman James Smith. James Smith, who was known to his friends and family as Jimmy, was actually reported missing earlier that same month on the 7th of April 1935 by his wife Gladys. Now the investigating officers actually invited Gladys and his brother Edward to the morgue to inspect the arm and give a formal identification. Using the boxing tattoo that was on the arm, Gladys and Edward were able to positively confirm that this arm belongs to James Smith. The first question, whose arm is this, had been answered, but from that answer arose so many more questions. What happened to James Smith? Is he still alive? Why and who cut his arm off? Due to the initial coroner's report that indicated that the arm had actually been cut off with a blunt knife rather than being bitten by a shark, the investigating officers launched a full-scale homicide investigation, presuming James Smith to have passed away. Now, James Smith had a strong passion for boxing, and when he was younger, he even tried to pursue his dreams of becoming a professional boxer. However, for unknown reasons, James didn't make the cut, and he had to find alternative work to pay his bills. He jumped from job to job to job before he finally landed a job at a local pub. And it was in this pub that James actually started to make connections with the criminal world. One of the people that James met from the criminal underworld was a very, very wealthy businessman who went by the name of Reginald Holmes. Now, Reginald Holmes, at least in the eyes of the law and the eyes of the tax man, made his money through the use of his very successful boat building business. But really, what was going on behind the scenes was a much, much different story. Reginald was loved by his community. He was a family man and he was very much respected Expected. He frequently gave back to his community by donating money to the local church, and on the side, he would smuggle millions of dollars worth of into Sydney. He'd also dabble in a little bit of business fraud from time to time. Reginald would get James to scam their contract builders out of construction materials. Or Reginald would take out a very, very expensive insurance plan on a building before James would then go and set fire to it so that it would burn down so they could claim the insurance money from him. Reginald and James quickly became a criminal dream team with James being Reginald's underdog, ready to do whatever was asked of him. Reginald would just drop some money into James's account every now and then, and that was done off the books and under the table. Now, Reginald and James worked really well together, but what they were missing from their dream team was a master forger. They needed a way to pick up their insurance fraud game, and Patrick Brady was the answer to that. Patrick had been a friend of James for a very long time, and 
Fortunately for Reginald and James, Patrick had also been in the insurance fraud world for a long time as well. Patrick was an expert at forging signatures, a talent that he'd picked up while serving in the army during World War I. Reginald, James, and Patrick came together and the perfect criminal dream team was complete. Unfortunately, the history buffs out there well know that in the 1930s, Australia experienced a Great Depression which was triggered by the Wall Street crash in 1929. The economy dropped, unemployment reached a record high of 30% in 1932. Export income was rapidly decreasing and people were becoming desperate. James Smith was one of those people. James Smith had recently gotten married and moved into a nice new house and was starting a family. However, because of the Great Depression, he couldn't afford to live the life that he wanted to, so he resorted to blackmail. James sent blackmail threats to Reginald for money in the regions of about $500, which in today's money, according to the Reserve Bank of Australia, is about 49,000 Australian dollars, 34,000 US dollars, and 27,000 Great Britain pounds. And of course, Reginald, he did not like this one bit. On the 7th of April in 1935, James told his wife Gladys that he would be going out fishing with some friends and that he would be back the next day. But James didn't actually go fishing. He actually went to play a game of cards in the Cecil Hotel in Cronulla. And he played cards with Patrick Brady, sharing several drinks between them. At some point in the night though, the pair decided to move on. Patrick rented a cottage about two kilometers away from the Cecil Hotel and the pair decided to head there to continue the night and James Smith was never seen again. Interestingly, a taxi driver later gave a statement to the police claiming that he had taken this man from the cottage to the home of Reginald Holmes. The taxi driver said that Patrick seemed to be scared and disheveled and that he seemed to be hiding something underneath his jacket. The taxi driver then went on to actually pick Patrick out of a police lineup, effectively confirming his identity. The police were finally getting somewhere in their investigations, however, their own piece of evidence was that of a singular witness who was the taxi driver and unfortunately this single witness testimony isn't enough to charge someone with anything. It wasn't concrete enough to say that a murder had actually taken place. Everything else they had learned through rumours and was simply hearsay. Without James's body the police were completely unable to positively say that a murder had taken place. James Smith could very well be alive and simply just have his arm amputated and amputation isn't a crime. The police decided that their best bet was actually to arrest Patrick Brady using this witness testimony and question him in relation to James Smith. And when they did that, it didn't actually take very long before Patrick Brady broke down and started pointing the finger at Reginald Holmes. So the police went and questioned Reginald at his boathouse. It is important to note that due to Reginald's strong standing position in the community, and his well-respected position in the community, the police went to him and questioned him in his own property, in his own boathouse. So they wouldn't have actually arrested him and brought him in for questioning 
they likely would have just had a very casual questioning session with him. Of course, when questioned, Reginald denied categorically having any knowledge of ever meeting anyone called James Smith. He even used his employee records to prove that James Smith had never actually worked for him. Now, Reginald was clever and he had actually foreseen this potentially happening and he had planned for it. He gave the perfect alibi to the police and even went on to further deny ever knowing Patrick Brady too, using the same evidence as not having an employee record of him. And because Reginald was respected and he was a high standing member of the community, the police they gave him the benefit of the doubt and they decided that, oh, he was, Patrick Brady was probably just pointing fingers. There was nothing concrete here. Um, he was clearly not involved. So they just accepted what he said and took the inquiries elsewhere. This was until four days later when they got reports of a drunk man on a speedboat driving erratically around Sydney Harbor. The drunk man on the speedboat forced morning ferry services to be heavily disturbed and even caused the harbor to suspend operation and closed for four hours. It was not long before police scrambled to their police boats and started the chase. The chase lasted for around two kilometers out into the ocean before the drunk man stopped the speedboat and surrendered. And it turned out that this drunk man was in fact Reginald Holmes. He had taken a bottle of Brady and a pistol and headed out into the ocean, got extremely drunk, and attempted to shoot himself. The bullet, though, through some sort of miracle, kind of bounced off the bone in Reginald's forehead, and the force of the shot threw him out of the boat, causing him to go unconscious. He later regained consciousness, climbed back into his speedboat, and still in a drunk and highly distressed state, began to terrorize Sydney Harbor. Police immediately arrested Reginald on several charges relating to disrupting the services of the harbor and avoiding police capture. Reginald told police that he had actually been attacked by a group of assailants, which is why he had a gunshot wound to the head, but it was fairly obvious to police that the gunshot wound had been self-inflicted due to the highly emotional state that Reginald was in and at the angle that the bullet hit his forehead. Now, it wasn't long before Reginald broke down in front of the police, telling them how he had been blackmailed by James Smith. He claims that, in actual fact, he did actually know James Smith and Patrick Brady. And on the 7th of April 1935, Patrick Brady had actually shown up at Reginald's house holding James Smith's severed arm. The arm had James's instantly recognizable boxing tattoo on it, and when Reginald saw it, he straight away knew that that was the arm of James Smith. According to Reginald, Patrick then demanded £500 from Reginald for having gotten rid of James Smith. And then Patrick went on to further blackmail Reginald and would say that he would expose Reginald if he didn't pay up. So Reginald paid up. As soon as Patrick was paid, he told Reginald of how he had gone about killing James Smith. He had killed him before dismembering him and then threw his body parts into the ocean. And then he had kept the arm as proof that he had done the deed. Patrick then left Reginald's house, leaving the severed arm on Reginald's table. Now, Reginald was scared that somebody would walk into his house and perhaps find him and discover him in possession of this severed arm. So he took the arm, got into his vehicle, and threw the arm into the ocean. Now a small shark then ate 
the arm, and then that small shark was then in turn eaten by the 14-foot tiger shark that would later be captured by the owners of the aquarium and swimming baths. A fact that was confirmed when an autopsy was conducted on the tiger shark after the human arm had been regurgitated. Now these two independent witness testimonies and the arm of James Smith was actually enough to launch an inquest into James Smith's murder. Reginald agreed to give a star witness testimony against Patrick Brady at this inquest. However, on the 12th of June 1935, on the same morning that the inquest was due to start, Reginald Holmes was actually found with three bullet wounds to his chest dead in his vehicle. Reginald had been shot by somebody else, with many people actually speculating that he had hired someone to kill him. However, I personally believe that it is much more likely that Patrick Brady had hired somebody to kill him, so get rid of this star witness testimony against him. And that was so that there was no more evidence against him so that he couldn't be charged. And this worked. I agree with Joshua that is much more likely that Patrick Brady hired a hitman to get rid of Reginald Holmes so that there wouldn't be enough evidence to charge him with anything. I completely agree with that. It's the only thing that really makes sense. I also don't see why you would hire a hitman to take you out. So... I think it's pretty obvious what happened here. Without Reginald's star witness testimony, the inquest and charges and case fell apart, and Patrick Brady was never charged with anything. No charges or convictions were ever made in this case. Patrick Brady was a free man, and actually categorically denied up until his death in 1965 that he had any involvement with either of the two men's deaths. And that is everything that we have for you in today's case. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Summer of True Crime series. Don't forget to jump over to Rachel Shannon's channel and check out the video that we did over there. It was a very interesting case. Don't forget to like this video if you found it interesting. Leave a comment down below telling me your thoughts and opinions on this case and telling me your theories. Don't forget to subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post. If you're a mobile user, be sure to press the bell icon and then the top option so you get all the notifications. And with all that being said, I will see you in the next case. For every time you slam the door, I would be the richest girl alive, live, live. If you hadn't run away, every time I asked you stay, you would sleep right next to me tonight. But you didn't know me, but you wanted, was a game to play. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.